Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from people in our community. These successful neighbors of ours will share their real life philosophies and solutions for success to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today lives in Greenville, South Carolina. He is a writer, editor, speaker, mentor, and founder of HeartStrong Media, where he works with companies as a media consultant. In addition, he is one of the original influencers, way before Twitter and TikTok even existed. He served news audiences on television for 36 years. During that time, he won 32 Emmys, the National Edward R. Murrow Award, the South Carolina Broadcasters Association Star Award, and too many others to name. He may not be the Archangel who shares the same name, but he is the closest thing I've ever met to one. Welcome to the show, my brother from another mother, oh, Michael my. Cogdell. Yeah, amen to all of that uh, Archangel <laughs> business. Yeah, I am not that guy, that's for sure. That's for sure. It's great to be here, man. Great yeah. to be here. Michael, the first thing that I want to jump out there and address is a little bit of backstory on our relationship. Uh-huh. I met Michael a week ago, guys. One week. And I'll remind you, he's won 32 Emmys. I've never even been nominated. Mm -hmm. We were total strangers, yet somehow you made me feel like we've been long lost friends reunited. You're very kind. How do you do that, Michael? Uh, I was raised by greatness. I was raised by a mother and a father who taught that uh, you get above your raising, but you always know the way to everyone's heart, to everyone's common um common heart common soul common mind you know we're all on this ball hurtling through the abyss together and at the end of the day it doesn't matter what we harvest in terms of emmy awards money it's kind of like warren buffett and when he was asked you know how do you measure success mr buffett man's a multi-billionaire right he said at the end of the day the end of your life how many people love you Mm. Who will love you at the end of your life? Yeah. Or are you sitting rocking back and forth in a corner somewhere? That's me, not, not Warren Buffett. Right, right. Uh, but but it, fundamentally, that comes down to how well do you love people? Right. People who love people well tend to be loved. And uh, the opposite tends to be the case. Right. So that's a long answer to your question. But no, was, it's perfect. It's perfect. And I saw one of your posts on LinkedIn uh, a couple of days. I don't know if you posted it on all social media. I'm really just on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. But you talked about treating the janitor the same as the ceo yeah thomas hardy yeah yeah oh absolutely i i believe you treat the janitor better than you treat the ceo okay you treat them both with love and kindness but chances are the janitor has had a more hard scrabble life than the ceo not necessarily the case right right the ceos tend to have all sorts of adulation Mm. you know you know blowing up their pants legs right but the janitor tends to live in lonesomeness tends to be invisible right uh, I don't like people to be invisible. So showing that appreciation to people who may not necessarily get that level of appreciation. The CEO, exactly the right. CEO hears his news clippings all the time. Right, right. The CEO probably needs less attention, and the janitor needs more. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of the story of uh, I don't know which was it was it Caesar or Augustus or whatever Julius Caesar that uh, had somebody walking behind him that said you're just a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all need that reminder every right. single day. Because sometimes we get too big for our britches mm-hmm. and get too, uh, and that's definitely not Michael Cog, but that's, that's why when I met you, you, you treated me like we were best for, we had been, and I've, Michael, I've met people that weren't 32 time Emmy award winners <laughs> that I met yeah. them and, and it feels like we connected, but I've never, I am trying to describe this in a way. I've never felt that the way that when we, when we shook hands and you looked at me in the eye and you smiled and you said, it was so nice to meet you. I felt like, wow, this guy's. We we must have been brothers, and I just didn't know it, and mm-hmm. he just missed me of, forever. Of another mother. That's that's what you said, right? Right. No, and you know, we are within eyeshot of my dad over there. My dad had a fourth grade education, had to go to the YMCA in Canton, North Carolina, to take the dignity of a bath. Mm. Think about that. Yeah, this man went hungry as a child in Canton, North Carolina. All he wanted in the world was an education. He had to compromise that. It give that had to give way to making a living as a little boy. He had to work. He delivered pharmaceuticals on a bicycle in Canton, North Carolina, in order to eat, so his brothers and sisters could eat in the Great Depression. Wow! I am one generation away from that. Wow! Just one. Yeah. You look around this house. You look around my life. 
And so I, I would go and speak to some of the smaller churches in, in this uh, in this TV market. And this is a large market. This is the 34th largest market in the country wow. out of more than 200. A lot of people don't realize that. Asheville, Greenville, Spartanburg. And these, these um, senior adults, I spoke to a lot of senior adults, a lot of the older church members. They would say to me, we can't believe you would come here. And I would say, why not? Yeah. I am a small town boy from Weaverville, North Carolina, raised by greatness. But that greatness came from poverty, mm. clawed itself out of ignorance, into reading, into consuming the news, into, into knowing. Claw yourself out of ignorance into knowing. And I think you claw yourself out of benightedness into loving, into caring for other human beings. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm, I'm blessed to meet extraordinary people in this career, um, and the most extraordinary ones are the non-famous. Yeah. They're not the ones who became president of the United States and all that. And those are the stories I love to carry around and tell. I, I've heard a phrase uh, that hard times make strong people, right? Mm -hmm. And good times make soft people. That's exactly right. And that's where your your parents came from those hard times. Mm -hmm. Very much strong. so. And you got to be the beneficiary of their wisdom from going through that. And it's, it's also amazing that people go through struggles and that really can build their character. The struggles are what makes them strong. Uh, I love, I, I'm a, a big fan of Jim Rohn and he used to say, don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better. Wish you were better. Right. Wish you were better. So how do, what, what personal or professional struggles have you gone through that you've overcome to, that you oh learned that, that made Michael the man he is. You know, for every one of those, you know, statues in this in this house, there are a thousand failures. Sure, a thousand newscasts wherein you know I can look at the air check and say, "Well, uh, that sucked. That sucked <laughs> real bad." Uh, this you fail, you fail, you fail. Was it Henry Ford who said? Uh, maybe it was Edison who said, "If you want to succeed, double your failure rate. Mm. You stay at it." That seems like something Edison would say. It yeah. does, doesn't it? Yeah, because you know he failed a lot to succeed, right. and now we're all basking in the light of it all. Right. Um, it's 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 failure is necessary. It's an imperative, and heartbreak is necessary. I told my fiance Dana Everhart last night a story that she had not heard. I had a man die in front of me during an interview. Wow, Ashley Jeffco. He was uh, waiting a heart transplant. It's Organ Donor Awareness Week. He consented to do an interview with us to say, why is it so important to sign the card? Sign that organ donor card. Do this for someone you will never know. Mm. So we go to this little furniture store in Greer, South Carolina, middle of nowhere. He sits down. He says, Mr. Cogdelight, I, I don't want to live because I have so many things of this world. Look around. But he said, I have so many friends. I'll never forget what he said. I have so many friends and I have this new little granddaughter. And she was about, I don't know, six weeks old. And he said, she is my pride and joy in the world. These big ball-bearing tears came up in his eyes. He's a big strapping guy. You'd never know there's anything wrong with him. Yeah. I looked down at my pad for a moment. I look up. And he's put his head back on that sofa. Turned gray. Just like that. Wow. And to make a long story only slightly longer, we did CPR. The, C the, uh, the paramedics come. They work on him. He died on that floor of his business that he shared with his wife. I, and the next thing I know, I have his wife and my arm around her, holding her up, and I have a piece of video with Ashley Jeffcoat's last words. Wow. And the last words were, sign the card. Sign the card. But you know what? His last words were also, know how to value your life. Mm. Your life will not be valued by a banker. Right. Will not be valued by uh, the stock market. Again, as Warren Buffett said, it'll be valued by how well you have loved and who loves you and how well you are loved at the end of your life. Yeah. There are all manners of failures that go into loving someone. You love someone through their failures, through their peccadillos, all of that. And that story ended up going on the air. The, the daughter, uh, his daughter, mother of that granddaughter, asked us to build the story out. We weren't going to do it. It just seemed indecent, of course. We're all heartbroken. Right, right. Um, quite literally, that story... Got picked up by NBC and quite literally had the chance to go from Bangor, Maine to Honolulu. So to this day, God only knows how many people are walking around with a heart, a set of corneas, kidney, a friend, a mom or a dad, a child, 
because Ashley Jeffcoat breathed his last breath into that microphone. He knew. Now, it would have been really easy for him to get all self-conscious and get afraid of making a mistake. Right. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I go on there and make an ass of myself? Mm. Fear. And in the, in the Holy Bible, don't be afraid. It's the most common admonition. It's in there 365 times. <laughs> it's almost like God saying, stop. Stop being afraid. Right. Stop being afraid to make a mistake. Make it. Make it again mm. until you learn not to make it again until you learn to be successful. God knows Ashley Jeffcoat that day was successful. And think about what his legacy is. Right. He consents, give a few minutes of his life. He gives his last breath saying, love a stranger enough to sign the card. Right. Heaven knows there's a great success in that. And why wouldn't somebody do Imagine. that? I, it's, it, it, it baffles me. It's, it's almost like when you, if you're, emptying out your closet because you can't fit into certain clothes anymore mm -hmm. and you just throw them away. Why wouldn't you just donate them to Why indeed. Goodwill, Miracle Hill, something like that? Right. Someone else would be glad to have those things mm -hmm. that you're tossing away. Right. And by the way, that story of Ashley Jeffco did not win an Emmy Award. Wow. It just won hearts and minds. Thanks to him. Right. Thanks to him. Thanks to his courage. Right. His sense of generosity. Yeah. In the fear, you you, talk, you spoke about fear there. How do you overcome fear, Michael? By knocking the hell out of it every day. Action. Yeah, action. You know, was was I afraid to, to anchor a newscast the first time? You better believe I was. Yeah. You damn right. It's right. one of those, yeah, I was. But if you want to do this, you want to fly an airplane, you want to anchor a newscast, and go out and do stand-up comedy, whatever... You have to overcome it. Yeah. You have to look it in the eye, best it, and did realize you, you're larger than it is. Is that something you learned from your parents as well? Uh, largely. Yeah. Yeah. And then growing up in a small town. And I saw I saw my own my dad's own fear. I was talking to my best friend on the phone today, and I said, you know, my father never set foot on one of the school campuses I attended until I got to college, until I, I graduated high school. And I'm convinced he was afraid people would know. He was afraid people might guess that he didn't have the formal education that he wanted. Mm. He was afraid. He was ashamed. Yeah. Renee Brown talks a lot about the, you know, the power of shame. It's like, do anything but shame your kids, shame your spouse. No, don't. It's the most, most harmful, damaging force. And um, I made it uh, really very much my, my cause as a, uh, an opponent of domestic violence, a proponent of, of domestic peace, um, to skewer shame and shaming people. It destroys lives, destroys right. psyches. It really does. And some people even utilize shame for temporary benefits. Mm -hmm. I think you spoke about the football player, right? Yeah, yeah. Are you talking about the uh, the, the Brene Brown story, the football player yeah. who lined up? Yeah, it's 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 a classic story. It's in, it's in her, her first book. He lines up and uh, he shows a little bit of fear of that guy across the scrimmage line. And, and I played high school football. Trust me, everybody's afraid. Yeah. It's just that some people don't show it. Everybody's afraid of one another. Right. You know you're going to get the living hell knocked out of you eventually. Sure, sure. And, and what does the coach do? He comes up, he swears at him, and he says, um, you know, we, we don't have, we don't have room for, you know, for that kind of thing. We don't have room for fear out here. Yeah. He shamed him. He shamed right. him in front of all of his peers. Right. And so what does he do? He gets down the four point stance. He knocks the hell out of that guy he was afraid of. And then he said, I proceeded to rage my way through the next 20 years. Mm. You know what anger is made of? Fear. Fear. Right. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of great social workers, they get somebody in there, this person is so angry, so angry, so angry, social worker will say, what are you afraid of? Mm. That kind of makes it worse at first. Yeah. But then they drill into it. What am I afraid of? And that fear is the malignancy that's destroying their lives. Wow. That's holding them back. Um, I, maybe, maybe I was a, a, a bloody fearless fool, but I dared to believe that, that this career could happen. And I worked at it. I worked very hard at it and I failed through it, failed over and over and over again. And, um, by the grace of God ended up here. Yeah. I don't know how <laughs> <laughs> in part by not by, by, by looking fear in the eye and right. And just keep walking. So fear is interesting. It's, 
it, I, I think that there's a Boy Scout motto or something that talks about fear and the def- definition of fear. And some people think that, uh, or, or courage, I think is what their definition mm-hmm. Encourage. Mm-hmm. Some people think that courage means you don't have fear. No. But courage means, no, you have fear, but you take action anyway. You think about the boys who walked onto Omaha Beach. Mm. Every single one of them was afraid. They were all scared to death. Right. But they kept going. Right. And kept going and kept going and kept coming. Kept coming on the Nazis and saved the world. Right. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. Fear did not get the better of them. You seem to be very... uh, You you seem to have a great deep love for freedom, for your country, and for your fellow man, Mm -hmm. Michael. Why are these things so important to you? American exceptionalism. I, I was raised, my mother was raised by a World War One veteran. This picture is in this, in this house. And I was raised in my first, oh, through seventh grade, those first years, by him as well. Mm. He helped to raise my father. My father's a grown man. My uncle Woody, Woodfin Parker. Yeah. There he is. He's immortal now in this, in this room. Yeah. Helped to raise him. This is a man who fought with mules and mustard gas in the mm. trenches of France. Wow. In World War One, mind you. But he comes home and becomes the sweetest, tenderest, strongest, gentlest, wisest man I think I'll ever know in my life. Gentleman farmer. That's American exceptionalism. He wanted no attention on himself. My Uncle Woody would be the last guy on earth to tell you what a big deal he was. I'll sit right here and tell you he was a very big deal. He was a big deal in his community. Yeah. He wanted to sit at his feet. My dad <clears throat> wanted to sit at his feet. It's like if a guy tells you what a big deal he is, he is not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. No. That's like, you know, I'm an honest man. I'm in this car business to make friends, not money. No, run. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. But it's that quiet, humble greatness that built this country that is this country. Yeah. And I believe we're looking up from a season of narcissism we've been in mm. and we're looking back and forward at the same time, and it can be done, toward that exceptionalism. Right. That, as, as, as the Tocqueville said, we are great because we are good. Yeah. We are good to one another. Right. You know, I'm, I'm marrying my fiance not, not be, just, just because she's a great looking woman, but because she is a great woman. Mm. She is a good woman, and she is great because she is good. Right. She's kind and generous, giving, just overwhelming love. That's what you wed yourself to. And we as a country are wedding ourselves to that ideal again. I see it. Yeah. I feel it. How how do we get back to that? And, and first, let me let me do this for our listeners because mm-hmm. you use the word American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people nowadays don't even know what that is, Michael. Mm-hmm. Can you define that for us and talk about what that is? American exceptionalism is, is, is and that's, it's a big, you know, polysyllabic word. You think, what is exceptionalism? You be the exception to the rule of malice, mm. selfishness. Be exception to the rule of greed, avarice, meanness, wickedness, um, hatefulness, on and on and on and on. We are the exception to that rule around the world. Mm. We, do, we are the exception to the, to the rule of third world poverty. We've done something about it. Right. <laughs> and we need to do more. And in this country as well. You know, we, we are imperfect but exceptional, mm. like any, any human being. We make ourselves exceptional in how we love one another. That's, that's the thing Tocqueville saw. Right. Is Americans take care of one another. They love one another through. And if you think about our days on the frontier, the frontiersmen and women, they took care of one another. Right. So they survived. You ever flown over the Rockies? Yeah. And you look down there and you think, how in the world did they get through that with right. me? But they did. Right. Taking care of one another. Upholding one another. And, and I think that there are moments in history, especially in America, where people get a, a, a blinding reminder of that. Mm-hmm. For right. example, I remember 9-11 right. and the weeks after. How people, it, w- it shook and rocked the country. But for those next week or two, people were nicer than they'd ever been in my entire lifetime. It was like they remembered, they had empathy right. for their fellow man. They had empathy and remembered, hey, you know what? Life is short. 
and it's all about love. It's mm-hmm. not about all these other things that you can, you just aren't promised anything. Right. I, do, you, do you remember what, what that felt like going through that? Absolutely. I remember anchoring it and, uh, and covering it in the aftermath. I, I was privileged to be able to stand before it at the old Greenville Braves Stadium, the uh, one-year anniversary, the one-year remembrance, yeah. and, uh, and got to speak and MC that night. And I saw the same thing. It had lasted that year. And we, we didn't just love the colors, red, white, and blue. We loved one another. Right. Uh, there's an apocryphal story of Abraham Lincoln. At the end of the Civil War, a United States senator came into his office and said, Mr. President, what do you uh, propose we do with these, and I'm sure there's some choice words, these damn Confederates. Right. And the president said, we are a nation as one. Mm. We must forgive and forget and rebuild and move on. Right. And I'm sure he didn't mean the word forget. Right. You have to remember it. You have to remember right. to forgive. And he said, what do you propose, Senator? The Senator said, well, I think we ought to hang them high, every one of them. And Lincoln, in his wisdom, said, if I, as President of the United States, name you the federal executioner, are you willing to carry it out? Hmm. The Senator didn't say another word. Right. Turned and walked out of the office. He's not willing to let his anger get the better of him to that degree. Right. He's not willing to look death, to look vengeance in the eye. No. And that speaks that speaks to a success principle. There is personal ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're making decisions but aren't willing to take ownership of the whole decision along the whole path. Correct. And all of its impact. Right. Uh, we, we are a nation awash these days in personality disorders. It's, mm. it's become kind of a calling of mine mm. to unearth that, to, to look at it, see where it's coming from. So many people are walking around with their emotions out on their sleeves, mm. their anger out on their sleeves. And I want to say, what are you so angry about? And what, and what is this doing for you? It's like Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? Right. You know, what's it feel to sit with that in your quiet moments? Yeah. I just urge people, don't live in that anger. Yeah. Don't let it live in you. So what it's you, a living death. What do you feel like? You said that it's one of your deepest causes or whatever. What do you feel like is, is some one of the causes of these personality disorders? If you go back into the, the legacy of World War II, you think about what those men saw. And then they, they came home and they just quietly lived with it. How many of them sought help? Hmm. How many of, how much help was there at that time? And we didn't have an understanding about, um, you know, borderline personality disorder, uh, narcissistic personality disorder. But if you, you, you run deeper into, into trauma, mm-hmm. how men and women have been traumatized in this country and, the, the, the world wars traumatized the hell sure. out of the men who fought them mm-hmm. and the women who were, who were near and some right. of the women fought. Mm-hmm. So you think about it, you, you live with that trauma, right? You bottle that up and then your children start living with it because mm-hmm. they're living with you. Right. And the alcoholism, the rage, the domestic violence. Which is one of the great shames of our uh, of, of this state, South Carolina. Mm. Um, that's where it started, I believe. That's where it didn't start, but it it, <clears throat> it became kind of galvanized. It, it it got its pulse. Yeah. In in that in that part of the 20th century, mm. and uh, and then of course you have you know Dr. King talking about the weapon of love. Mm. Use the weapon of love. We will wield the weapon of love. It sounds like a counterpoint. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. Right. It's not. It's the only weapon that works. And what I, I, I just sort of urge people to do is wield the weapon of love upon yourself. Mm. Find a way to learn to live with yourself well so that you can live with others well. I love the, uh, there, there's a book by Ogmandino called The Greatest Salesman in the World. Mm. And uh, in that he, he has like these, I think, 10 scrolls that are affirmations that you can uh, right. read. And one of them is, I will greet this day with love in my heart. And he mm-hmm. talks about using it as the way he says, this is the most powerful weapon that can melt all hearts 
like into the sun whose rays right. soften the coldest clay. Right. And uh, it's it, it just is so love is the most powerful thing that's out there. Mm-hmm. In right. fact, I believe that the antithesis you've got a spectrum on one end is fear mm-hmm. and on the other end is love. Is love. Right? Is love. Look at look at Southwest Airlines. Herb Kelleher. Mm-hmm. Hard smoking, hard drinking, Texan, lawyer, and he founded that company on a cocktail napkin at Dallas Fort Worth Airport with right. his partner. This is a man who said, better a company be bound by love than by fear. Mm. And look at it. I mean, look, look, my God, their, their logo is a heart. And they know how to have fun. Right. It's the most fun experience you'll have in an airport. Now. Right, right. Uh, and, and and that was part of, of not was, but it wasn't just part of, it was the very heart of that of that company. It was its founding principle, and, and he lived by it. There's an apocryphal story about Mr. Kelleher. Uh, and I hope this is true. I have, I have no doubt, really, that it is. Uh, one of his employees, and they had, you know, by this time, many, many thousands, had a child become ill. Child's in the hospital you know, in another city. And the mom um, allegedly told this story of being out, you know, on her haunches outside that child's room, probably down in the hallway praying. And she looked up. Here came Mr. Kelleher. Walking down the hall. You heard about it. Yeah. Got on an airplane. He owned a few. Right. Went, went and put his arms around that woman. Wow. This is a man who doesn't just say love, he does it. Mm. And uh, the word was when he he became quite a, a motivational speaker, he would go around and he, he had only two two things that he wanted. What can we get for you, Mr. Keller? He wanted a, a tray of a certain kind of whiskey and a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> and my father would say, you better lay those down. And, and I wish you were still among us. But the man's legacy is still among us. Yeah. That legacy of love beats the hell out of fear. Right. Don't be afraid. And it seems like most of the the media, social media, every single avenue that people are consuming information nowadays mm-hmm. is layered upon layer of fear right in there. Right. How do we combat that? You talked about earlier... Uh, you want to reverse things or you feel like that we're mm-hmm. looking backwards, looking forward. What do we do to make America? I, I guess I don't want to use the term make America great again. <laughs> Cause it is great. It always has been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do we, how do we skewer that fear? How do we best it? Right. How do we defeat it? Yeah. I think first by looking beyond ourselves, if you look at Instagram, look at Facebook, you can tell so much about a person by how many pictures of that person are on that Facebook page mm-hmm. versus how many pieces of sundry gathered wisdom. Mm-hmm. The great story of, of, of great sacrifice of someone, someone doing something for somebody else. So doing it so much, they forget about themselves. Right. I think we forget about ourselves in this country and we become truly great. Forget about ourselves to the extent that we take care of ourselves. We understand, we, we confront our fears, we confront what, what is, is making us afraid, making us so angry. And then I want to say, forget about yourself. Mm. Stop posting about yourself. Stop posting pictures of yourself. Yeah. I want to say to all Instagram moms, put your clothes on. <laughs> put your clothes back on. Yep, I, yeah. I love a good woman, womanly form as, as much as anybody. Right. But what, what's underneath that right. is this overwhelming fear of not being enough. Well, I need somebody else tomorrow to tell me I'm beautiful all mm-hmm. over again. I am so thankful that I didn't grow up in a generation where I had, like Facebook didn't exist until I was well into my adult years. Right, right. Instagram, I didn't even have a cell phone in my pocket until I was 20, in my mid-20s. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, kids are getting cell phones at 6 years old, 8 years old, 10 years right. old, and they're... There's this addiction now to when does my phone vibrate with access with a notification to with with another like with another right. comment right another another updraft mm. and let's let's face it what what is narcissism what what do narcissists want more than anything fuel yeah they have to have fuel you right. think about it that fuel is you're wonderful you're beautiful you're great you're sexy you are desired by me. What's underlying that? Yeah. The sense that they don't really desire themselves. They don't desire their own company. It's fear that they that no one desires them. So they have to have everyone desire them. Yeah. All that. Wow. That's the problem. Yeah. 
Well, we could go on and on with it about yeah, this, Michael, for yeah, an hour. So let me, <laughs> let me pivot. Yes. Please. And I want to, I want to hear from Michael about solution stuff. Let's, first of all, let's, let's start with foundation. How does Michael define success? Again, it's, it's, um, uh, as Warren Buffett said, at the end of, of my life, and there's a, there's a rectangular hole and I'm going to be cremated, but you, you get the idea. Yeah. Awaiting all of us. Right. Who will assemble around that hole and say, this man loved me. Mm. This man loved me and I love him. Right. This man loved me well, loved me through one of the darkest times of my life. Said one little thing. Who knows? Right. And I'm not looking for credit. That's just a definition of success. Right. True love doesn't look for reciprocation. No, it doesn't. Right. True love gives without expectation of Indeed. Indeed. And you find you find those marriages out there where you have two people who know how to do that. One's not dependent upon the other. One's not codependent with the other. They just they just love one another sacrificially. Those are the ones people notice. Those are the ones that inspire the term. You know, the, the question question you you want to get a room? You know, it's like get a room. You know, those are those are the marriages people envy. Yeah, yeah. If you had to boil down all your wisdom to here's my one secret of success. If I could pass along this, Mm. what would that be? Wow. Humility. It's an absolute imperative. Again, touring around the country, some with the Reverend Billy Graham interviewing a few times, people ask me, you know, what's he like? He's a man. He's a man. He's a man who made the Gallup surveys most respected over 60 times. No one else will ever do that. Wow. And now you kind of have to educate the young. Who was Billy Graham? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, he was an evangelist. He was a Christian preacher. But Billy Graham's life transcended all the, the, the tenets of religion in so many ways in that he was the humblest creature I've ever been around in my life. He truly was the humblest man, humblest woman. No, nobody could beat him on humility. Right. Well, I would say that if, if anyone could, Michael, you embody that. And that's part of, that's part of what, what came across when we first met. You're because okay. you, 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 you have stature. You have all the, you have the 32 enemies. Yet when you met me, you didn't come across as I'm this big hoity toity person. But you know what? You know how Billy Graham beats the daylights out of me? Uh, my, my are sadly on display in this house. His would not be. Yeah. And I, I've been in his home and, and it's a, it was a very humble, humble place. Billy Graham's entire legacy was built on that humility. You can't have love without humility. Right. You can't have success without humility. Not true success. You think, you know, pride goeth before a fall. There's a lot of falling going on out there, but humble people are low. They know how to go low in order to, to get high. They're not, they're not looking for that, that the high reaches of notoriety, celebrity. And he had all of that, you know, friends with presidents. He had a way of, of stating something that would, would cause people to lose their breath in the best possible way. I sat in the Georgia Dome, the, the, the city of Martin Luther King, mm. with Jimmy Carter, former President Carter, and Coretta Scott King on the stage. Wow. There were 85,000 people in the Georgia Dome that night. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham's last sermon he's going to preach in in the city of Atlanta. He stood up there, and in the middle of that sermon, he said, I think you should go out of your way to make friends with a person of another race. Hmm. Could have heard a pin drop. This was not that long ago. And we're still dealing with that legacy, right? The legacy of racism. The legacy of slavery is still upon us, still upon this country. Hmm. It's it's upon each of us, the calling to do something about it. Hmm. Again, forget about yourself. Right. Stop being proud of yourself. Go and reach out to someone who, who seems different from you and is exactly the same. Exactly the same, only a different color. Exactly the same, only a different shade. And that was his calling. But I guarantee those people took that home. You see, it, that's been years ago. And we're talking about it right now. Right. Billy Graham's in his grave in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're talking about it right now. Right. It takes a certain humility just to get up there and make that prosaic statement, that 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 admonition, admonish people, do something about the racism in this city, do something about it. make friends with a person who doesn't look like you, dare to forget about yourself, and do that. 
Not be so prideful that you can't do that. Again, it distills to humility. So humility being the one key secret. Do you also identify Billy Graham as being that ideal of somebody? If you are going to try to be humble, oh my this goodness. is the guy to chase. Yeah, he, he, he certainly is one of them. And this, again, this has nothing to do with, I don't care, I don't care what your religion is, what your religious background, right. uh, or the absence of, of faith. Right. You look at this man and how he lived. You know, he, he and Dr. King were friends. Yeah. Uh, he, he told me once, he said, I was in the inner circle. I could call Martin Luther King Mike. Yeah. And those, those who called him Mike were, were, were very close to him. <laughs> and they had agreed to kind of go, go separate into, into the world, but, you know, with a unified message of love. Right. And Billy Graham refused to speak to segregated crowd. He wouldn't do it. Right. He said, if you're going, if those, if those barriers are going to be here tomorrow, I will not be here. Right. He was a hero in civil rights, in mm-hmm. the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that humility. But, but it's, it's interesting. A man can be so humble. And have towering convictions. Because hmm. you look, look at the convictions in men. Huge. And that same in that same sermon, he, he stood up there and he said, Billy Graham is a sinner, and Billy Graham deserves judgment, and Billy Graham deserves hell. Hmm. You can almost hear a gasp go over the place. Yeah. Because what they they expect is, oh, I don't know, um, a coronation. Hmm. Oh, Billy Graham is here. That's the last thing in the world a man ever wanted. Right. And great leaders are like that all through history. One of my favorite presidents of the 20th century, Harry Truman. Think about it. Think about Harry Truman. Tell me about that. Harry S. Truman. You know, the S didn't stand for anything. (laughs) They just thought it looked good in there. He didn't have a middle name. Yeah. Harry Truman is the only president of the 20th century not to have a college education. Hmm. He's a little haberdasher from, from Hannibal, Missouri. Yeah. Sold clothes, played the piano. Right. Think about what was called upon Harry Truman to do. Mm. The decision. Yeah. Do we launch it? Do we not, Mr. President? The yeah. Enola Gay, she's sitting right there. There's a bomb on there. We, we can we can annihilate 170,000 Japanese just like that. Mm. Send that message. He had to make that choice. And he said, launch her. And he saved millions of human lives in the midst of this horrible tragedy of war. And what is war usually, what's, what's usually its driving force? Pride. Right. Prideful nationalism. Mm. Look at all of that. Yeah. Harry Truman had to make that decision. And look at our relationship today with the Japanese. Yeah. We dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan. And they are some of our dearest friends in the world. Yeah. We protect the Japanese. This is what's possible in human lives mm. when people are humbled. As you say, well, where's the humility in dropping a bomb on, on a nation state? Put an end to right. the pridefulness of war. Yeah. At great cost at that time. Right. And it's a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. But out of that darkness, look at where we are now in that relationship. I can't even imagine the burden of the responsibility that he had. Uh, I, I know that it was... A famous thing he had a saying on his desk that said the buck stops here, right? Yeah, it did. And that's yeah. that's again one hundred percent personal responsibility. He didn't shrug off if it is if a hard decision had to be made, it was his. And he made the hardest one, arguably the hardest one any president will ever have to make. You're right. You're right. And it transcends all identity politics, it transcends MSNBC, Fox News Channel, all that nonsense, and all the echo chambers and all of that. It comes down to this. This man had to take human lives to save many more human lives. Yeah. Michael, I love, how, I love how you're speaking of other of these other men, again, showing your humility instead mm-hmm. of speaking about yourself. Uh, but speaking of these other men and using them as examples, you must be an avid reader too, I assume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite books? Uh, I'm a big Hemingway guy. And it's interesting, Hemingway was such a flawed human being. He ruined every relationship he ever had. Yeah. With Scott Fitzgerald, his Alcoholism, right? Alcoholism, uh, narcissism. Uh, He was a terribly, terribly insecure man. Yeah. But what he would... So so why do you love his books? What he would do as, as a writer is he would open that very warm and tender heart that he was so afraid to show. And you can see it. You can read in our time, which is a Hemingway work that hardly anybody reads. Yeah. And look, look at the Nick Adams stories. 
and the, the dealing with the aftermath of World War One. It, it was all bravado. Hemingway's whole life was bravado. It was a stage mask. Mm. But underneath it all was this broken-hearted little boy. Mm. And he would let that show. Pat Conroy, same same thing. There's, there's a moment in a Conroy film, and I don't think it's in the book. It might be. I hope it is. I need to read the whole thing all over again just to see. Remember that at the end of The Great Santini, and Santini is this, he's, he's the villain in the story. Yeah. But he's also the hero. He's terrible to his family. Uh, Conroy writes with great courage how, um, how egomania can translate into shame, mm-hmm. can translate into, into the most gory harm that a man can do to his family, to his children, yeah. and to people around him. And yet at the end of the film, he's in that jet over Charleston, and she flames out on him. And you hear the guy in the tower saying, Bull, get out, get out, eject, eject. And what does he say? I can't. I'm over the town. Hmm. Crashes that airplane. Takes her out into the ocean rather than take human lives. Hmm. As Conroy, showing the innermost Pat Conroy. Yeah. Showing the innermost uh, world of his own father. Right. With whom he had a very tempestuous relationship. And one of the things I love about Convoy, and I'm kind of the same way as a writer, uh, critics will be critics, and, and I urge people, just let them be. I, I, I did my job on TV. I exposed myself to, to horrible critics and some wonderful critics yeah. all, all my life. So let the critics be the critics. Let them have their say. And you continue to have your say being exactly who you are and exactly who you're called to be better every day. And you know the difference between light and dark. Right. You know the better part of yourself and the worst part of yourself. Which parts to run from and which parts to run to. Pat Conroy, the critics love to say, oh, this is it's overdone, it's overwritten, his purple prose. And Conroy would say, yeah. So, that's how I like it. That's how I choose to write it. Can't argue with the success. I just urge people, especially young people, don't be who your friends try to be on Instagram. Right. Be who you are. It's interesting how you can learn these success principles if you're looking for them, Mm -hmm. even in works of fiction. Right. 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 What other, what other books or authors do you recommend for, for our listeners that are wanting to learn more about success or humility or overcoming fear, love, things like that? Brene Brown. Okay. Brene Brown. Uh, wonderful book is, you know, based on the, um, the speech given by Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the title. Um, it's the man in the arena, yeah. Daring Greatly. Daring Greatly is the title of the book. Okay. Every man ought to read what that woman wrote in that book. She's all about vulnerability. Yeah. All about showing up and showing who you are. Showing showing your peccadillo. Show your weaknesses. Yeah. That's how we, that's the only way we find true strength. Hmm. You know, Billy Graham's dash dares to get up there. I, I deserve judgment. I deserve hell. It's right. Billy Graham talking. Right. And and great leaders across time have done the same thing. I'm an, I'm an imperfect man. Yeah. I'm an imperfect woman. But we're going to strive together to be less so tomorrow. Um, yeah, Brene Brown is, is, is absolutely brilliant. Genius. Genius work. I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr. Father Richard Rohr. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I've but I heard, heard of Roman Richard. Catholic. Uh, R-O-H-R is, is his last name. Okay. Uh, Richard Rohr wrote a book called Falling Upward. And he's wrote many others. And you'll find yourself highlighting the entire doggone thing. You yeah. just go through it. It's like, oh my God, this is brilliant. The, the whole thing is just wisdom after wisdom after wisdom. And the whole point of falling upward is only in failure do we find success. Yeah. Only in darkness do we find God. However you define that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's in those moments of weakness. That, that's where, in, I think in the Bible it says, in your weakness... I have, or my, my power strength is made perfect Perfect. in your weakness. Yeah. Wow. Not in your Bentley. Wow. Yeah. Not in your private That makes a lot more sense now, the way you put it, because I've heard that phrase before, but it didn't make sense until you just put those things together for me. Right. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to put both those books in my, uh, to read list. (laughs) You're very kind. So let me ask you, uh, personal advice here. Mm -hmm. 
You are a professional interviewer. Probably the best I've ever, oh my God, ever seen. <laughs> so you're seasoned. I know that podcasting is different from broadcast media, mm-hmm. but I'd love to hear your advice on how to be a great interviewer. You do something that's that's absolutely vital to, to interviewing well. Okay. Allow silence to ask its question. Have it say. So many times in, in, in interviewing someone, it's not something that I said. It's compelling someone to to speak into silence because that silence will get to the essence get to the essence of the person get to the heart people will try to fill that silence you ever notice you're watching tv and if 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 a writer whether it be a commercial or a piece of tv news or whatever allows the whole thing to dip gracefully into silence that's when you perk up wow there's something here to see there's something here to learn because the thing is just barking words at you all the time. You yeah. don't even hear it anymore. Um, but silence works, and you do that very, very well as an interviewer. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, what What other tips for a great inter- What makes a great interviewer? Empathy. Mm. Empathy. I'm just like you. Tell me how. Mm. It's like you and I are just alike. Tell me how you were just like me. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it, it compels another person to the, the person you're interviewing to think about the the person who's doing the interview. It's like, where, where'd you come from today? I guarantee you we're coming from the same place on right. some level. We all have the same fears, which we talked about, that we have to, uh, that we have to conquer every day. The same, the same worries, which, which are fears. Uh, the same unfortunate, misbegotten pridefulness and the desire to keep that stood up every day. It's so exhausting, pridefulness. And, and we see it. I mean, I've, I've covered so many political figures on both sides who this uh, spend inexhaustible amounts of time keeping the image up, keeping that stage mask on. And and then I have seen remarkable humility among you know some political giants of opposite ends. I'll never forget covering John McCain when he was running for president against Barack Obama. Those two men loved each other. Yeah. They loved each other. They didn't agree in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, if you if you go back and look at it, I guarantee it's on YouTube somewhere. Go and look at the funeral of John McCain. Mm. He's one of the greatest pieces of high church I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Look at the face of Barack Obama. He's absolutely shattered. He's heartbroken. We must get back to that in this country. We must get away from the, the banality, from the maliciousness, and back to, I don't agree with you, but I love you. And I love this country. And humility and empathy seem to go hand in hand. They do. The more you, the more you understand your own weaknesses and your flaws and realize, I am a human, mm-hmm. the easier it is to have grace and mercy for other people and what they're going through. Even though we're all going through our own different struggles. Mm-hmm. We humility. all have our own different devils. But. Humility doesn't mean debasing yourself. It means forgiving yourself so you can forgive others. Wow. Okay. Say you that again. You humility is not debasing yourself. It's forgiving yourself so you can forgive others. Mm. Humility is not self-demeaning. It's self-deprecation. There's, there's a difference. Self-deprecation means you don't show up telling the world what a big deal you are. Self-demeaning. Uh, demeaning yourself. Uh, really means you turn on yourself. You go to war with yourself. You don't believe in yourself. And so much of what we'll see on Instagram and Facebook, so much of the the warring politics and all that amounts to people scared that they're not enough. Scared that they're not sufficient. That somebody's going to find some way to mock them, make fun of them, shame them. Brene Brown, we talked about it. Mm. Um, that they're not being vulnerable. It's like, you scared? Yep, me too. Me too. Yeah. I think the greatest football coaches, uh, and those, those who have, have played the game know it hurts. It's sometimes just not a lot of fun. And camp is not a lot of fun. I think the greatest coaches get the fear part out of the way early on. It's like, who among us out here is not afraid and see that one boy, maybe two or three or four or five, dare to hold up their hand? It's like, all right, you're going to be the first ones to run. Mm. you're going to run right now. You're going to run till I tell you to quit running <laughs> because you're not honest. Right. Be honest. Right. Be honest with yourself. We all do deal with fear. Yeah. 
Yeah. But beat it back. Right. Pete Carroll, there's, there's a great 60 Minutes piece on him. And I, I urge people to see it. It's on YouTube. When he was coach of the USC Trojans, and yeah, they got in trouble and all that. It's nothing, it has nothing to do with right, Division right. One football. But Pete Carroll, when he was there as coach, would go with a driver down into Watts. Not going to Santa Monica. He's yeah. going to Watts. Yeah. Uh, my former agent was raised in Watts. He and I talk about it. Uh, it's one of the worst neighborhoods in America. He'd go down there unarmed, and he'd see some gangbangers on, on the corner. He'd get out of the car, go walking up to these young men. He saw their dignity. He saw in them what he saw in himself. He saw no difference between himself and them other than misfortune. Some misbegotten choices, perhaps. But as a man, no, they're men the same as he. He would say to these boys, you, you want to come to football practice? Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm Pete Carroll. I, I coach the Trojans. I can't put you on the team. Come, come on out and show. let us show you how we do things. Yeah. So these young men, they, 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 he's got a bunch of gang members. Yeah. At football practice. Yeah. And it, it, during the, the production of this piece, one of his players, two of his players get into a fight. It, yes, it happens at practice. Right. And one of them is one of these big kids. He's like 300 pounds, six feet nine, you know, big kid with his man bun the size of Rhode Island. You know <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And they get into it and, and coach comes running out there and he kind of forgets that there's a crew. There's, there's a camera one. <laughs> Maybe a couple of them. Yeah. And, um, and he pulls that kid down by the by the helmet, by the face mask, and you expect him to go off on him. You expect him to shame this kid. You expect there to be all sorts of profanity, and, and he goes to war with him. No, no, no. Coach Carroll calls him by name and says, son, this is not who we are. Mm. Let him go. Wow. So a few minutes later, the kid's over on the bench. He's sitting there by himself, and he's hanging his head for a minute. As well he should. Humility. Sure. Coach inspires some humility in this young man, this, mm. this towering young man. And the reporter right. goes up and says, well, what happens? Are you doing all right? Young player says, man, I disappointed coach. Mm. I don't ever want to disappoint coach. Yeah. Don't want to let that man down. Mm. And all these gangbangers out there get to see it. They get to watch. Mm. They get to see what true leadership, what true manhood looks like. They get to see the power of peace in a man. Peace is a powerful force in a man. Right. Harry Truman uh, allegedly lived with it. He yeah. said he, he slept well with the decisions he made. He was at peace with it mm. because of the lives that were saved. I think it's sometimes when you do the right thing and it's always, and you know it's the right thing, even though it's hard, mm -hmm. even though you know there's bad consequences, that you can right. have peace with that. Right. Exactly right. Even in the midst of sometimes may seemingly chaos going on around you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've had, I've experienced that a couple of times in my life where we're going through chaotic events, but you felt like you were walking with peace through it. And we're seeing that in households all over the place, my brother, and in, in codependency. And I, and I am a living, breathing example of this. Mm. Only when, as a young man, 17 years old, only when I stopped trying to be my father's God. Mm. Did sobriety and God get hold of him at the same time? Mm. Only then did he hit bottom. So many people are going around protecting people from their bottom. Mm. Oh, I can't let her hit. I can't let her suffer, can I? I can't when she's when she's when she's passed out on the floor in her own vomit. I've got to pick her up, right? Mm. That's compassionate. No, step over her. Yeah, let her live down there. That's love. That's love. Let. People. And those are hard sometimes, Michael. That's, yes, it's very hard. Especially, you know, I've grown up with uh, siblings and friends that have dealt with substance abuse or things like that. Yeah, everybody's and, been there. And deal. Some and, and sometimes, like you said, just the the best thing, you if, if you're trying to constantly fix them, mm -hmm. you're getting in the way of God. Right. I have a good friend. He's a Baptist minister here. Jimmy Tarrant. I hope he hears this. Jimmy Tarrant stood up in front of his congregation over in West Greenville, Southern Baptist. Yeah. And he said, folks, I am addicted to hardcore pornography. And he let it hang there. Hmm. You imagine the courage? Yeah. You imagine the humility? Yeah. It took, Jimmy Tarrant hit bottom that day. Yeah. He did an interview with me after that. Hmm. We, we, we produced a piece on it. His wife is sitting right there. Yeah. Changed everything for the better. Right. That honesty, that vulnerability, that showing of his 
of his flaws, mm-hmm. the humility, the strength, the courage of his humility. So he and I became friends. I need to reach out to him. Every single text, every single message he ever sends me, he concludes it with the letters Y-N-G. Mm. This, this Y-N-G, when I ask the listening audience, what do you think that means? Y-N-G, it's an absolute antidote to codependency, an absolute antidote to enabling, whether it be a, an addict, drug addict, alcoholic, and people that get addicted to all kinds of things, including themselves, their own behaviors. What do you think Y-N-G means from Jimmy Tarrant? No clue. You're not God. Mm. Remember that. Mm. You are God to no man, no woman. You're not God to your own kids. You're not God. The theme, the theme throughout all this, Michael, seems to be humility. Right. I'm yes. loving all Indeed. of these things tied together as humility. Right. Uh, me and you could chat for another hour <laughs> or two. I'd love Let's to. Maybe we'll do an episode two. Let's right? do. Um, Let's do. I'm honored. But I'd love to wrap things up with a little bit more about what you've got going on, where you're going. Uh, and first, I know everyone wants to chat about your your 36 years as, as a. <laughs> but I want to start with this. Let me ask this Just question. The fear of the shroud in me. It's like 36 years, gone. Michael. Yeah. You were primary news anchor for WYFF for 32 years. Long time. How did it feel to move on to your next challenge? Blissful. It really did. I miss the people. I miss Carol. Carol was my TV wife for all those decades. Yeah. God, God love her. Uh, and she is like a sister to me. Yeah. Jane Robolo, John Sesswich, of course, who's retired now. Jeff Hart, who's out now. I miss the people. I miss the camaraderie. Um, I miss the depth of the storytelling. I miss the stories that, that even in the darkness, uphold the best of humanity. That I miss. I do not miss the grind. I do not miss marinating in human tragedy every day. I yeah. don't miss that part. So it takes it, a toll on you. It does. It really does. And now I can be a writer and a consultant. And we have a wonderful company. It's called Heartstrong, Heartstrong Media. It'll be Heartstrong Publishing. We have a children's book coming out here around Valentine's Day called Where Did Joe Go? Where Did Joe Go is a children's book about death. It's about a death. Somebody dies. <laughs> Very interesting. People say, I've written a children's, children's book, book about, about death. death. <laughs> You want to fight about it? And, I was like, <laughs> and people have said, you can't write a children's book about death. I just did. Yeah. And you think about what well, the, the Seuss wrote about death. What, what is the Grinch? The Grinch is a story about a, 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 a creature trying to kill Christmas. Yeah. And what's the end? Joy. Right. So where did Joe go? It's about a horse who dies. Mm. And in the end, there is absolute joy. And how a lesson for children and the child within us all, how do we create create immortality on this side of the veil, immortality uh, here on earth, every time you love, every time you remember, every time you bask in what was good about this person you love, you 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 resurrect that person. You resurrect that creature, that horse, that dog, that grandmother. They're there with you. That child, God forbid, they are there with you. You create immortality by love. And where does love live? In remembrance. In remembrance. Bask in what is good. That's what the book is all about. Yeah. When does this book come out, Michael? Valentine's Day. Right around Valentine's and Day. And where where can our audience find it? Uh, there will be a dedicated uh, retail site. We're going to try to do as much of that as we can, uh, just because the book business is in a mess around the world. Correct. But it'll it'll be everywhere. It'll be Barnes and Noble. You know the various places. Uh, we'll do a big debut. You're probably going to hear two more about it than you ever wanted to uh, in the next few weeks. We have a great illustrator, George Pachepsov. Yeah. And the very quick story on him, Elevator Speech. I interviewed him, I think, 14 years ago. He was arguably the most famous modern artist in the world at that time, compared to Picasso and Chagall all over the world. What made it interesting is George Pachepsov at that time was 11 years old. He's a prodigy. Wow. Uh, he hangs in Oprah's house like at a that Mozart, time. Mozart of painting. Very much so. Wow. Very much so. He, he, at that time, hung in, let's see... Oprah's house, Colin Powell, Michael Jordan, Celine Dion. When he was 11 years old. He was 11 old. years old. And it become very famous. He's now a 20, I think he's 29 now. 29-year-old Harvard grad. Had a free ride offer from every Ivy League school. Chose wow. Harvard. Majored in statistics at wow. Harvard. I was chatting with him on text just today. He has illustrated this book with... Such artistic grace. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, he graces everything he touches. He's yeah. a genius. So um, you'll see and hear about a lot of him. And I'm in the rumble seat. 
That's where I am in the whole thing. I'm just along <laughs> for the ride, man. I'm not driving. That's awesome. I'm excited. Can't wait to get that book. Uh, and it, it makes sense to, you know, you say, fight me. I wrote a children's book about death. But if you sit and think about it for a second, it makes sense that children deal with death. Yeah, they do. They have to. They have to. So, so to put a, a book so that they can figure out how do I deal with this. Right. And and come out on the other end with right. acceptance and go through those stages of grief, but still oh, have the acceptance and move on. And people will say, what? Well, I'm protecting my children from death. We, we don't need to. I, don't, I want to say, are you protecting your son or daughter from himself? Yeah. From herself at the same right. time? Right. Because that's living in me. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't. Protecting children from death is like protecting children from oxygen. Right. It doesn't, it, 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 it's, it's death. Yeah. They, they have to learn to, to deal with their emotions. And that's mm-hmm. what this is about. Right. It helps them learn that, that love is the most powerful force on the planet. So talk a little bit about your, uh, media. You started a, a company, Heartstrong Media, mm-hmm. with your partner, Rachel Allgood. Right. Share a little bit about what you guys do. We are a marketing firm. Uh, we are a television storytelling firm. We tell corporate stories for people. We, Engage in things like executive shadowing, getting executives out of their own way, teaching them to communicate with compassion, communicate um, a, a great tenant of a, comp- of a corporation with love, teach them to treat their people as they would treat themselves, and perhaps to treat themselves better after all. Um, we, we get companies and individuals, executives out of their own way in a lot, in a lot of ways, and we also create messaging for companies. Hmm. They, they lose sight of the fact that every company is a message. Every company is a story. It must mm-hmm. be told with grace. It must be, should be told with humility. Right. Um, again, Southwest Airlines comes to mind. Uh, the Virgin brand comes to mind. Look at Richard Branson. You ever seen Richard Branson in a tie? I don't think so. No, I don't no. think so either. <laughs> I, and, uh, Branson's one of those guys, like, screw it. Let's do it. Let's try it. Yeah. If we fail at it, then we'll try something else. Right. You know, he's that billionaire. He's mm-hmm. that guy who's willing to go out there and fail and, uh, and treat his people well, treat himself well, and, uh, and just be faithful to the cause of being deeply human. And I've heard people say it's easy for him to be that way. He's a billionaire, but that's what he was before he, he ever became he a billionaire. He wasn't always a billionaire. He started right. out selling records right. out of a truck of a car. You know, and, you know, he bought that island in the Caribbean, I think, when he was 29 years old. He yeah. became a success story early. And one of the ways he did that was by serving people. Mm. He's a very humble guy. Virgin Airways started because he and his, uh, I think it was his fiance at the time, were trying to get from one island to the other and they couldn't. And they kept getting canceled and canceled. So he went and, and, and chartered an airplane and gave people a ride. I mean, he sold them seats, but it's like, all right, we're going to help you. Yeah. We're going to help everybody get off this rock. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's how it started. I, I have a feeling that. Again, we could talk for another hour right. or two. Let's let's put a pin in this because, yes. golly, Michael, next, <laughs> time, next time next time we have a conversation, let's schedule for two or three hours. Uh, <laughs> one people will be asleep. So one last question to wrap things mm-hmm. up. For aspiring uh, students or someone who wants to get into the broadcast media or news anchor, what advice do you have for them specifically? Don't study broadcasting. Okay. Study humanities. Read, read things you don't even like. Read the great writers. Read people who can turn prose into beauty. Fitzgerald, Hemingway. Yes, he could do that. Yeah. People like Beryl Markham wrote a wonderful book, West with the Night. Um, I I have a copy. I just found one the other day. Um, a copy of some classics in uh, Scott Fitzgerald with um, with Gatsby. Yeah, just just read the Great Gatsby again. Read it over and over and over again. And then there's there's I think there are three copies of this book in this in this house. To Kill a Mockingbird. Hmm. Read what she read what she wrote, but but hear what she says in that book. It was so far ahead of its time. And people say, well, what does this have to do with journalism? If you're not a writer, you're not a journalist. If you're not a reader, you're not a writer. Hmm. We all learn to write from reading others. Right. And it comes down to this. You don't tell stories well on television. Think about this. If I say the king died and then the queen died, I've stated two truths. Mm. But if I say the king died and then the queen died of a broken heart, Mm. that's a story in miniature. Right. That's deeply human. That's all of us. 
we will all suffer the same on some level. We're all in this together. Be a caring journalist and caring man or woman. That's what it comes down to. We're all in this uh, ball of mud. Ball of mud, hurtling through the dark. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much. A joy, bro. A great joy. Thank you so much. All right, listeners. Let's get out there and make our world, our country, and our community a better place. When you succeed, we all succeed. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over. Thank you.